You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. Today, we've got two people who could take the whole time each by themselves, but they happen to be good friends. The first is a colleague of ours here in uh, Stanford Technology Ventures program who also teaches at Cal, who is also a serial entrepreneur here in Silicon Valley, who has started eight startups, and who also has a best-selling high-tech book on marketing that you may remember that Mike talked about last week. This is a fantastic book and one that I recommend to those of you who are interested in figuring out how to create products that customers actually want to buy. So that's the one. Then you may say, Steve Blank, besides being famous and a great uh, professor and a great uh, entrepreneur, what else, and a great author, what else has he got to, to, uh, to his credit? He happens to be, how many years were you a friend of Jesse before? Five. Five years with Jesse Fink. Now, Jesse Fink has also distinguished himself in the world of entrepreneurship in different venues. How many of you have ever used Priceline? Priceline, okay. This man is one of the co-founders of Priceline. And how many of you are interested in clean tech ventures of one kind or another? Hands up high. In a, in a second or third or fourth or fifth iteration, professionally, Jesse actually did something that has been a lifelong passion for him and I believe his spouse. He put together a firm, co-founded a firm that invests in the environment and things that are socially responsible. The name of that firm is Mission Point Capital. So I'm actually not sure what the two of you guys are going to do. All I know is I better get off the stage and let you work your magic, right? right. Welcome both of you to Stanford. So, Jesse, I thought that was a uh, spectacularly confusing introduction um, for uh, anybody sitting or listening in the audience trying to figure out how a guy uh, who started Priceline ended up um, in a company that's doing uh, environmental finance and low-carbon investing. What, uh, they really don't seem like they're on a career path that one would sign up for at Stanford. How, how did you end up from Priceline to getting into this uh, new area? Well, first, uh, let, me, let me be a politician. I've been watching so many debates and say thank you, Tom, and thank you, Steve, and thank you, Stanford, for having me. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> that worked? One of us had a you know, I, there, there's, a lot, uh, there's a lot that I want to say in these uh, 45 minutes, and so I need to make sure that I, uh, I pace myself because especially when you have two entrepreneurs and you have two marketing folks on the same panel, it, it's quite possible that we can go off in uh, some really interesting directions, and I, and I think whatever we do will be interesting. And we can remove all the oxygen in the air. At That's the same right. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I'm not sure uh, how the panels have been handled in the past, but it, hopefully today will be an interesting uh, afternoon for you. Um, I, uh, I actually have a degree in forestry. And uh, so 30 years ago, when I was in high school, I was interested in the environment. And that was in the 70s. And I wanted to make a difference in the world. And so I thought going to forestry school was a way to do it. Um, and I went to forestry school and realized that um, that wasn't going to be a path for me that was going to make the world a better place. I worked uh, for Georgia Pacific as a field forester cutting down trees 
that didn't really seem like that was going to save the environment. And so I thought uh, I should go to business school because then I can save the world because it felt like that business was the way things happened. And so I went back to business school and uh, tried to get a joint degree in forestry and business. And I, w I was not able to do that, but I ended up with a, uh, a good, strong business degree in marketing and took a career uh, in consumer marketing, uh, starting off with Citibank. I always, always wanted to go back into the environment. Always felt that at some point in my life I'd go back and do something that would be meaningful. And uh, just had to wait for the, the timing to happen. Um, Priceline uh, was a phenomenal uh, part of my career. And uh, as a co-founder and as chief operating officer, it was uh, a once-in-a-lifetime experience. Being in the East Coast, uh, there weren't many internet companies back then. There aren't now. Um, but the things that we did in 1995, 96, 98 were the same things that were happening here all the time. But I don't really define myself as Priceline. That was uh, a great opportunity, and I'm very proud of everything we built. What it actually, the success of Priceline has enabled me to come back to uh, what my true passion is and why I went to forestry school. Um, and that's really where I'm spending my time now is the uh, convergence between environmental problems and business and capital market solutions and trying to put those together uh, to solve large-scale environmental issues. Um, and climate change really is the key issue that we're focused on now. Well, before I let you get off the hook on Priceline, because I know you want to talk about clean tech, um, Priceline st started in the uh, backwoods of Connecticut, mm -hmm. didn't it? It was a mm -hmm. start in Stanford. The Stanford, yeah, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so here we are. And when did it start? Uh, we started working on it in '96, and uh, we went out in '98. Right, so yeah. there were yeah. lots of interesting yeah. technology plays in the valley on the web then. Right. And so was Priceline just a better airline business or travel business or what was the entrepreneurial story? Uh, you know, Priceline, uh, the idea behind Priceline uh, was Jay Walker, um, who was the real, the core founder and the true entrepreneur. Jay put millions and millions of his own dollars into Priceline and did a phenomenal jo job and was working 100 hours a week trying to really make it a, a success. Priceline needed technology in order to work. Um, it was, it's a business model. It, it was technology enhanced, not driven by technology. Um, we really were solving two problems. We were solving uh, the airlines problem, which is they had a lot of empty seats, and they wanted to fill the empty seats, but they didn't want to uh, reduce the profit margin that they were getting at last minute from business travelers. And a consumer problem, which was people wanted to travel, but they really didn't want to pay um, the fees or the price that the airlines had. So what, what Priceline enabled to do and the technology behind it was allowing consumers the power to name their own price. If you remember early days with William Shatner, and it's still, you know, still so much in right now, which is great. But name your own price. And the Internet enabled it to happen because, it, uh, in fact, we actually conceived the business with paper. And so one of the versions we had was that we would fax um, 
this was 1995, that we would fax to the airlines the consumer's request for airline tickets. It just couldn't work. Couldn't work with paper, couldn't work with telephone. So it, it was enabled by the internet. But we were really not a technology company. We, we needed uh, the net to provide the, the computing power. Um, but it really, we're solving the consumer problem, and it was a business model issue. So I think that's a really interesting observation for entrepreneurs in the room, in that Priceline wasn't a technology play. Yeah. It was an insight about a business model. And, and that, I, I think, maybe is the segue into what are you doing now? I mean, what is Mission Point Capital, and, and what's the insight about that business? Well, it's important to say that Priceline is not a technology, really not a, a pure technology play, because people who know me know that I'm not uh, all that savvy on uh, technology. So I uh, um, have to make sure that I'm clear about that. Um, where we are uh, with Mission Point and where we are in, in solving these large-scale environmental issues um, feel the same way in that uh, the solutions to large-scale environmental issues, climate change in particular, uh, is not going to be solved entirely with technology. Technology, and I, I guess I have to be somewhat careful where I am when I say that, um, but uh, the issues are so large with climate change that technology will enable the solutions, but they're business model issues. There are systematic issues that need to be addressed in order to really solve the issues of uh, the carbon uh, economy that we're in and the transition to a low-carbon economy. And so we are based in Connecticut. We're East Coast-based. Um, and we look at things, uh, we look at technology as an enabler of one of the solutions, but we also really look primarily at the capital markets and see how the capital markets and changes in the capital market systems can uh, affect this transition to a low-carbon economy. So when I think about um, clean tech investing, I think of solid oxide fuel cells or new, you know, thin film semiconductors or uh, solar concentrators or something else. And I'm getting a feeling that all those words you just used for the last two minutes doesn't mean that. Um, so what is it that goes on in Connecticut that, that makes you a, an investor in this space? And, and so w what's an example of the type of difference between East Coast uh, clean tech investing or low carbon investing and what's going on here in the Valley? Right. Well, <clears throat> the, uh, the company that we formed uh, two years ago uh, with my partners, uh, Mark Cirilli and Mark Schwartz, Mission Point Capital Partners, uh, is a company, we're a, a private investment firm. And we are focused on what we call a transition to a low carbon economy. And we believe that the transition will come from clean energy and environmental finance. Um, and it's important to have both of those together. If you, uh, you know, here there's a tremendous um, effort, and it's fantastic, towards clean energy technologies. Back east, there's a lot with environmental finance. And environmental finance is trading carbon credits, um, environmental commodities. Um, we, as a firm, look at the intersection of those two. So an example is um, there's a lot of discussion right now for, um, regarding a U.S. carbon uh, and climate bill, which hopefully will get passed this year. Um, it's called Warner-Lieberman, if you follow it in the press. 
And there's discussion about a cap-and-trade mechanism, which is very important, putting a cap on carbon and then allowing the markets to trade underneath that. That requires a tremendous amount of an infrastructure, a financial infrastructure, to enable companies uh, to trade their carbon underneath that. So we look at the whole financial transaction that has to happen, and we will invest through our firm, invest in companies that are involved in setting up the markets so that uh, other companies will have the ability to trade carbon. Um, that, to us, is as important as investing in solar, which we have uh, some investments in solar. We have investments in wind. You know, we're a firm believer in uh, renewable energies and cleaner technologies in the core infrastructure. But I, I think the other part for us is really taking the environmental finance piece of it and marrying it together with the uh, clean energy aspect. So help me understand, what are some examples, maybe just types of companies, if not names, that um, you guys invest in? In the, um, in the clean energy side, we look at uh, technology companies. Um, so we, we have invested in a solar uh, technology company. Um, and I should say, you know, on our website, there are a, a, a few of our portfolio companies. Um, most of them uh, we have not put on the website at this point in time. Uh, so we are looking at solar technology. In the wind sector, we, are, we have invested in a surface company. Um, so we looked at wind and said, you know, it's great. There's wind farms and that need to be built. That's not a business that, that we're going to get involved in. But all these turbines are being built all over the place. They need to be serviced. And so we invested in a wind service company um, that is well positioned to take advantage in the growth in the wind business. Um, that's a service business. So technology business, service business, financial service business. And I think that's an area that we spend a lot of time because these technologies get developed and then they need to be deployed out there in the marketplace. And I think that may be a difference that we see is that the issues in clean energy and in really trying to solve the problem in climate change is innovation obviously is important, but commercialization is equally important. And so how do things get commercialized? They get commercialized by the financial markets and by reducing the cost of capital. And so we spend a lot of time on financial services, looking at leasing operations, looking at ways that you can deploy all the great technology that for the most part is being established and developed out here. How do you get it out to the marketplace? How do you get it scaled faster? Um, it's different in the energy business. Uh, it's, you know, it's not just putting more servers in. You know, you, it's not a $5 million to a $10 million to a $20 million. It, it, you can create a technology and it could be a $200 million install for the first coal plant to actually deploy that, uh, that technology. That requires a different type of financing than the traditional uh, models that were not in the energy sector. So does your firm have research analysts and financial analysts that follow these markets and figure out where the best place to deploy capital is? Or do you wait till people come to you? <laughs> or? Yeah. Uh, we are very research focused. Um, you know, it, it, people often ask in, in our firm, uh, who are our competitors? And uh, as far as we know, we really don't have anyone that's doing what we're doing. And, and this is not a commercial for our firm by any means. Um, we built this firm, purposely built the firm, and purposely attracted a team of talented people 
some who have a technology background, uh, a policy expert, a, a markets expert, and, and at the core are investors, are private equity investors. And research is at the core. What we do is we start with what's the customer problem, something that's near and dear to you. What's the problem that we're trying to solve, and how are we going to solve that problem? And so often, if you start that way, and we look at policy, and we look at uh, technology, and we look at what are the impediments to rolling out a solution, uh, we will go after, we'll identify a particular company that we feel is well-positioned, uh, we call them platform, company, platform companies, well-positioned for growth. In some cases, that company may not exist, and we may be looking to take a, a piece of this company, a piece of this company, and put them together to solve the problem. So we are very much research-based. Uh, we pay a lot of attention to policy. We pay a lot of attention to what are the customer problems. Um, and we really are focused on, on solving, uh, which, you know, is, this is a huge challenge that we all face. And I, I hope that there's folks in here who are interested in clean energy or clean tech or whatever sectors you want to call it, um, which is actually, I mean, why I'm here is in some ways if I can leave people with just some semblance that there's huge opportunities from a career perspective, it's so important that there's probably uh, never been a time where the solutions are out there and we just need the smartest people paying attention to solving the problem. So this is a commercial for, for you, for trying to find careers in the sectors. So this sounds like a uh, almost a great segue to how much is this uh, to make money for your investors and how much is it is, is your passion? And is it a combination of both? Or, um, right. I mean, you could have set this up as a nonprofit. Uh, no, yeah, I think. <laughs> Hopefully yeah, it won't be yeah, one. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Look, you know what, I, uh, I, like you, Steve, like everybody here, I, you know, I'm an entrepreneur. I'm a, I'm a screaming entrepreneur. And I want to, you know, I, I feel like the, these problems, the environmental problems are so huge. The only way they're going to be solved is getting the capital markets engaged. Um, I spent and the capital markets, you mean not Sandhill Road? Oh, I, no. And Sandhill Road is very engaged. Right. It's beyond Sandhill Road. Beyond Sandhill yeah. Road. Yeah. It's, it's getting the bond markets. You know, Sandhill Road, excellent, excellent in, um, in supporting and promoting early stage venture firms, later stage, but private equity firms, uh, um, the whole debt markets, the whole bond markets. And I think um, finding, you know, we look at all the different asset classes from equity to bonds, to real estate, and look at all the asset classes and, as a firm, try to figure out how each of those asset classes can be reoriented um, so that they make excellent investments in the transition to a low-carbon economy. Th we are as far from a nonprofit. We work with nonprofits um, because, and, and I, you know, I support nonprofits in every way we can. But nonprofits are there to push the policy and push the solutions. What needs to happen on the other side is there needs to be business and there needs to be solutions. And what we like to think that we're doing is accelerating uh, the solutions and catalyzing the solutions so that the capital markets can be unleashed and solve the problems uh, 
in a, a much quicker way than they would have otherwise. So is what you just said, is you're betting you can make a pile of money for your investors doing the right thing? Is that? Look, I am, I'm, uh, well, I, uh, hopefully it's not a bet. <laughs> uh, I should start by saying, I, you know, I am an investor, in, uh, in a pretty significant investor. So, and I go to work every day, and I'm there because I believe that we are, you know, we're going to do very well um, economically, but, and I think we need to because um, there's a term socially responsible investing. That's not what we are. You know, we're investing. We're doing no different than biotech. You know, I think the folks who are investing in biotech are passionate about that. I would hope they are. Um, and the folks who are investing in, in Web 2.0, whatever's next, they're passionate about that. I just happen to be passionate about uh, the environment and solving environmental issues, and I'm thrilled to be able to have, uh, be part of creating a firm and part of a growing sector that uh, is really focused on, on solving these problems. So why aren't they being solved out here, Those, the, the monetary parts of, of this problem? Um, why aren't there 10 of you sitting here from 3000 Sand Hill Road? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, you know, I, that's. I think that um, Sand Hill Road. There's a model, and it's a very successful model that works out here, and it needs to work. And quite frankly, it's so important in clean energy that it works. But uh, some of the issues that are uh, facing us, like coal, and uh, coal is not going away, and we need to figure out clean coal and how to separate the carbon from coal plants and capture it and sequester it. Those are not going to be venture capital types of funding. You know, those are going to be industrial funding. Those are going to need $50 million, $250 million. And so it's an aggregation of capital that is different than the venture model. And so the venture solves a piece of it. I think that things like fuel cells and, and solar innovation and some of the geothermal, um, you know, great things and battery technology, great inventions that are happening here. But the commercialization piece of it, how are you getting billions of dollars to come in to do projects? And I think that's a big difference too, is that the, the, the length of time to get these solutions going is a lot longer than uh, you know, typically what the time period is here. Um, and so some of these problems and the solutions uh, actually just don't fit the venture model. They, the payback is not going to be within that period of time that investors uh, are, are requiring. Interesting. And you mentioned um, uh, you have a policy person on, yeah. on staff. Um, and, and I've always kind of wondered uh, the impact of policy on deployment of clean techno technology, because here in California, I don't know if you know, but um, there's now a rebate system for solar, and I think last year there was more than 400 megawatts of uh, installed solar. So do you affect policy, follow policy? What's your short and long-term view of... Uh, yeah. I, I would say the investments that we make uh, are somewhat, uh, they're not dependent on policy. When we make an investment right now, it's going to be financially sound with the policy as it, you know, as it stands. Um, the option is when policy changes. But as a, as a firm, we, we study policy very closely, and we are trying to influence policy. Um, and I think uh, we all can be. You, know, you influence policy when you vote. Um, 
But it's so important because uh, the, the capital markets will only go so far. Uh, and policy is, uh, is what changes and what really moves capital. Capital is very efficient and it will find it. And a good, example, uh, a good example, but of a bad policy, in my opinion, is corn-based ethanol. Um, so there's a policy and it was out there and a tremendous amount of capital went and is still going into corn-based ethanol. Um, it's, uh, it just shows you that when a policy is created, the capital will flow into it. I think that the, the policy is so important um, and in the investment community needs to pay more attention to policy. I think in the past we haven't, but especially in the energy industry, it's a regulated industry, policy is crucial. So let me switch from Mission Point sure. and, and clean energy to where everybody, at least in this room and maybe some people listening and watching are. When, you're, when you were in college, and <laughs> did you know you were an entrepreneur? Uh, uh, I actually didn't know that that's what the term was called. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, you know, I think that um, I, th I think there's personality that you're born with. Um, I'm not sure it's something that you can, you can grow into. So, you know, probably like everybody in this room, well, I'm not sure if you have paper routes anymore, but we had paper routes. Did you have, did you have paper routes? I did. Uh, <laughs> in, in, in my generation, you had a paper route. And as an entrepreneur, you'd run around and try to figure out, you know, how many new... Uh, subscriptions you can have in your paper route. So I was constantly, uh, constantly trying to create new ideas, um, whether it was in the jobs that I was in or solving other types of problems. Um, yeah, I mean that's what I am now. I I, I want to solve problems, and uh, you know now my focus is solving problems that I have been interested in for the last 35 years. Do you wish you would have done something in college that you didn't do that would have made you a more effective entrepreneur? Uh, you know, uh, in college I met my wife, and I would say that that was the best thing that I, I did in college. And so I don't know if I would have done anything that might have changed that. You know, I think um, there's a series of decisions that, uh, that everybody makes. And, when, you know, when I think about I chose to go to forestry school because I was passionate about the environment. I went to business school because I felt like I needed to progress my career. You know, I, made, I just made a series of decisions each step along the way. And I would say that uh, the decisions were not, they, were, they had a financial component to them, but they were not entirely financial based. They were usually, what can I do next? How can I learn? How can I grow? How can I get more responsibility? Um, and I don't think there's any set career path. I would say that if you, if you could get into a situation where you're actually doing something that is very meaningful to you, um, you're going to, uh, at least you're going to be more fulfilled, and I think that would lead to uh, success uh, as defined that way. So uh, just the last couple of questions, Jesse. On, on your personal life, I know you're kind of involved with nonprofits, and, right. but um, also this green energy uh, things feels also like... Um, um, you're heading in a new direction as well. Is there some intersection uh, somewhere? Yeah, you know, I, um, I think one of the challenges uh, that we have is that I talked earlier about financial systems. I think we're at a point now, you can, you can see it in what's being written, you can see it in Bill Gates's uh, speech at Davos last week, that um, you could see it in the things that Google's doing and the Skoll Foundation and all these you know, wonderful 
individuals and organizations out here for the most part that um, have realized that um, there's an opportunity to blend um, what was philanthropic in nature um, and what's commercial in nature. So we look at it and uh, we, we do a lot in supporting the nonprofit world. We do a lot, obviously, through Mission Point um, in the commercial side. But there's a, there's a space that's in the middle. And I think that's an area that uh, we spend some time in right now in trying to see where, you know, where does it work? Why does it have to be nonprofit, for-profit? And you know, up until now, it, it, it was really far like that. If you were interested in the environment, forget about trying to go work in a for-profit world. Um, and nonprofits and for-profits were going battling like this. I think that so many great things have happened uh, in the last couple of years. There was a, it's an organization that was formed last year called US CAP. And it's an organization, GE was ahead of it, um, and uh, some great nonprofits and some great other uh, industrial companies coming together. Now I think there's 30 companies. And essentially saying that the nonprofits and the business world have to come together to solve some of these issues. So it's a, it is really an interesting time where, and, and nonprofits are hiring uh, business school folks because they recognize that they need to have a better sense of uh, the business community of uh, entrepreneurial community and putting it all together. So I think that the traditional paths and separate pods uh, are coming together. And the last question, how about nonprofits uh, investing in funds like yours? Are, are they doing that? or uh, They are starting to do that. Um, our, uh, our investor base uh, is, a, is a phenomenal investor base and it does include some, some foundations, some endowments, uh, there's a whole area that's called uh, mission in investing or mission-based investing, and that's an area that we spend some time working on as well. And that uh, area is saying to large foundations and endowments, families, hey, now you have an opportunity to put capital to work that is aligned with the, m the mission of where you're giving money away. So there are organizations, you know, large environmental organizations that are spending a lot of money um, solving environmental issues and they have an endowment and that endowment is being used for something that has nothing to do with environment. What needs to happen is financial products need to be established so that endowments and foundations and families and corporations and pension funds have the ability to put their money to work. You know, again, back to Sand Hill, um, those endowments are, you know, they are lead investors in the, in the VC firms, and that's fantastic. There need to be uh, other types of financial services that these endowments can put their money to work. Thanks. You know, it just strikes me, um, sitting here and listening to some of the conversation, is that, uh, you know, what you did with price point, making a Relative, excuse me, <laughs> price line. I was thinking about mission point. Price line. That's a good name, though. We yeah, should actually come up with price point. Uh, <laughs> see if we can get William Shatner for that. Uh, what you did uh, for price line and creating a new business model in the, again, the Connecticut backwoods, which in fact, uh, ten years later, seems almost intuitively obvious that, holy cow, you didn't have to build the technology company to do something very unique. Sounds like the equivalent is going on here for energy, um, that all of a sudden that everything we're doing here in Silicon Valley is the technology base for the things that are going to be new business models, uh, maybe back east where people have access to 
capital measured in hundreds of millions and billions of dollars to actually take this technology and deploy it to every household or uh, every company where it's appropriate. And I, for me, I think that's the real eye-opener or ear-opener listening to this story is that in Silicon Valley, we're sometimes, particularly at Stanford, we're sometimes so insular in the engineering school about technology-driven solutions for everything, just remembering the fact that that technology has to be deployed for it to be successful and to have an effect, um, at least on reducing carbon. And uh, we might have just listened to the uh, first and, and the foremost in, in that area. So I want to thank you. Uh, is, is there anything we should have asked you that uh, uh, you think uh, we missed? Uh, should we tell the story of how we met? Yeah, go for it. Uh, so so um, it, it, life uh, sometimes has uh, uh, funny twists and turns. Um, Jesse and I independently decided to take a vacation with our family, of all places, to the Galapagos. And when you're stuck on a boat with someone for 10 days, it's either very good news or very big, bad news. And the very good news about this story is, is that I met this other crazy entrepreneur who the only thing he could talk about five years ago was how he was going to change the world in, in energy investing and was drawing diagrams in the little ship lobby as we were bouncing up and down and side and whatever. And, and, and we'd come back from a hike on one of the islands and he'd be drawing and we'd be sitting and whatever. And the only revenge I got to take on Jesse is five years ago, he got to listen to me coming up with this new idea about something called customer development and that book, Four Steps to the Epiphany, as I was drawing and he was rolling his eyes. So, um, and the good news is our kids actually liked each other and uh, managed to entertain each other when we weren't looking at sea lions and uh, birds and sea turtles. So um, it's been a great relationship, and um, I think we'll close it and take some questions from the audience. Great. Yeah, right. So question in the back. Uh, so I think of um, investment in energy as being uh, largely, not wholly, uh, capitalized uh, um, by, by the public sector. And I think of, uh, um, I guess, you know, it might be interesting to, to look at some examples. Um, I'm thinking about the bond <laughs> issue that uh, whoops in the Seattle area where they funded five uh, very large uh, nuclear power plants and then that that, that money didn't work for, for, the, uh, for the energy, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, the people that got the energy. But just, you know, maybe you can help us understand uh, how, what the role of public funding is um, and, and private investment in, in energy. So, uh, so the question, if I could repeat it, is, uh, Jesse, what's the difference between public funding, like raising bonds right. for energy plants, versus the private investment um, you're suggesting that your firm will offer for energy? And, and not just my firm. I think that's a great question. I think that there's a combination of both. I think the uh, public funding comes in m many different ways, and some of it is coming in R&D, um, and that's uh, you know that's an area um, in the last couple of years, unfortunately, that there's been a shortage of research funding uh, in the energy sector. Hopefully, that uh, will change with the energy bill and in the future. But as far as large bond initiatives. Um, uh, you need the private sector to jumpstart some of these initiatives uh, and prove out the markets before you can get large-scale uh, funding on the private on the public side. And so there's there's certainly a place in many places for a public and private, um, but there really some of the things that I'm talking about 
are getting the private markets, the, the VC community, the private equity community, to fund the companies, fund the development companies, so that the public markets could go in and actually fund the projects. You need the entities in order to establish that. Um, well, an example, probably a, a, an example could be in the solar business, uh, as it stands right now, when large-scale utility-sized solar is now being rolled out. And it wasn't. And, you know, uh, so that solar um, has happened, and it's, uh, in fact, we're invested in a company called Sun Edison that uh, is putting solar on rooftops of industrial companies. Getting to a point where it's uh, utility strength, uh, then the public markets will be able to fund those projects. But you needed to prove out the model before you can actually get that to happen. Question over here. Speaking of proving the model, we've seen that ethanol is failing because there's all sorts of infrastructure issues and just making ethanol public health. The environment is as much now. Um, how did it get to be? you know, capital markets uh, favored, even though it had so many risks. And at the time, were those risks considered solvable, or is it just like hindsight is 2020 now, that ethanol might not be a, a good solution? Do you want to repeat you could, you, So the question is, uh, how did ethanol get where it is if it's so bad? Is <laughs> 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 the short version of the long question. Um, you know, it's interesting. We, uh, as a firm, the question earlier was about research-based, and we spent a lot of time looking at corn-based ethanol. And uh, we saw quite a few investments that we could have invested in and, and actually done well financially, but chose to pass. Um, I, I think that uh, people weren't focused on the environmental issues related to ethanol early on. It was getting on the bandwagon of energy independence. And so there was a lot of excitement about public policy, especially in, obviously in the, in the corn states, um, to make ethanol be a success and, and have a victory for energy independence. And there really, at that time, there weren't uh, people standing up and, and really standing up for what the environmental impact was going to be. Um, and I also think with corn-based ethanol in particular that people believe that it's the start of um, biofuels that will lead to cellulosic ethanol, which is not as uh, damaging um, from an environmental standpoint. Um, it's uh, it's going to be a better from an energy usage standpoint. It uses waste in some cases as opposed to food for energy. So I think going into it, people believed that corn-based ethanol was not the end-all solution. It, you're going to jumpstart it, and if enough, enough money went into the markets, it would, it would spur, which it has, you know, a tremendous amount of activity, and hopefully that would lead to innovation in cellulosic ethanol, which uh, people believe is, uh, is more of the answer, certainly is in corn. And, and just for an engineering class, I, I will remind you, you can set up, fund, and take public businesses which might be incredibly profitable, but not necessarily um, great for the environment or for public health. And the markets sometimes do reward them, a la cigarette companies yeah. are still in business and quite profitable investments, but not one, no one would make the argument uh, that that's anything other than making money at uh, the expense of public health. Other, Tom? Um, 
earlier, Jesse, you were talking about this idea of trading carbon credits, and you said something about an, uh, putting a cap, uh, sure. an umbrella. I, I bet there are a number of people in the audience who just actually don't can't visualize what this is about. Is this like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange? Someday there'll be people, you know, buying and selling credits, carbon credits, mm -hmm. or New York Stock Exchange. If you can sort of paint a picture of where it could be in the future, maybe what's it like now? I mean, we're right. really early in this market. So, so Tom's question, mm -hmm. Jesse, is can you explain cap and trade in 30 seconds or less? <laughs> um, uh, well, you know, the best way to explain cap and trade is what happened with the Clean Air Act and sulfur dioxide and, uh, and SOX and NOx, uh, which I think was 10 years ago. And uh, it was under First President Bush when there was a cap on emissions, and, and that was primarily from power plants. And the cap, so essentially there's agreed upon cap, and therefore uh, you have to, if you are a power plant, you need to get your emissions under a certain, uh, a certain amount that you agree to. And then there's a trading mechanism that goes in place that allows companies to trade underneath that cap. People say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't seem right. You know, if you, if you can't reduce your own emissions, you actually can buy a credit, you know, the ability to uh, pollute in carbon emissions. Um, what the whole purpose of cap and trade and what's being discussed now um, in the Warner-Lieberman bill um, is reducing, the cap sets a reduced emissions on carbon that is, uh, and, and there's actually some debate about what that reduction should be, but it's back uh, of lower than what it is right now. So it essentially says economy-wide we're going to reduce the emissions, everyone, and then it, it, it mandates each uh, business to what their um, emission level could be. And the purpose of cap and trade and, and why we support it is that it is forcing everybody to innovate. It's forcing you to, uh, to make a decision about cleaning up the, uh, or making your energy usage more efficient um, and investing in that. And if you can't for an economic reason, then you have the ability to buy a carbon credit from somebody else who has made that investment. And so the cap just brings the entire emissions down, and then the trading mechanism happens underneath that. It's, uh, it's happening in Europe right now under Kyoto. Um, it will happen here in the U.S., um, and it'll be exchanges that are set up. Uh, you're right on. Um, there'll be registries that'll set up. You know, in any type of a market, which is what we're excited about, any type of market, you need all of those market mechanisms to make a market efficient. You need to feel that it's credible, that it's transparent, and all of those uh, infrastructure pieces will, will be developed within the next couple of years to support cap and trade. So that's like the Chicago Board of Trade yeah. for, so hog bellies and carbon futures. Are, okay. <laughs> Question in the corner. What companies do you imagine will be supporting this transaction? Will it be the old companies like Merrill Lynch or new Right. Right. So the question was, yeah. what, what kind of financial firms will be supporting these, the traditional investment banks uh, or something new? That's a great question. I actually think it's all of the above, and I think there's a place for all of the above. Um, the traditional uh, financial service companies, the infrastructure companies, as well as the uh, investment banks will, will be a part. They are already a part of it. Um, but uh, and you need them because of the the credibility and the experience that they have. But it also is an opportunity for 
startup companies to come in uh, and play a role. Uh, my sense is they will to a certain point, and then they will uh, be brought into a, a, a larger fold. Good question. Yeah. Other question. Um, with this cap and trace system you were talking about, I know there's a lot of debate on how it should be initiated, right. on whether the permit should be initially auctioned right. off, or should it be with historical standards of the companies in the last like, five, ten years? What's your take on it? <laughs> so, so the question is, if you put cap and trade in place, should you use historical standards or should you use some others? Yeah, that, that's a that's a great question, and uh, uh, I can't give you a total in-depth answer to it. But uh, we we believe that the auction system is the right way to go. There's there's a real question. There's a lot of money when you do cap and trade. There's a lot of money that can be created, and the question is, how do you distribute that money? Does that is there money that's going right to the companies that have uh, created the credits, or is there some way to distribute those uh, the revenue to other uh, sectors in the economy? Let's take one on this side. Do you see any inherent dangers in combining the nonprofit with the commercial? Just because the objectives of the two are very different. You know, one is to make money, and yes. one is to make a, you know to change the world more or less. And in the future, could the money that the nonprofits give not necessarily go to what? Initially, want given the different objectives of the two sides. So the so the question was if you're taking um, uh, money from nonprofits into a for-profit fund, uh, can you run into some problems uh, when you do that? Yeah. I, I thought it was actually a different question. Oh, good. Which <laughs> was, that, was that the as, as uh, <laughs> were you talking about the uh, getting f foundation money into a for-profit, or were you talking about uh, foundation money and possibly the money given doesn't go to what? Okay. Yeah. Well, let me um, let me answer it just in. in you get to answer any question now you want. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, the, a, a nonprofit. I don't know how familiar people are with nonprofits, but nonprofits uh, actually some nonprofits have very large endowments, and so they have a responsibility to invest that endowment for a return, so that that return can uh, fund operations in the future. And they're making investments every everywhere. You know, uh, they're, uh, in probably in most cases, they're invested in all different in sectors and all different industries unless they've been able to exclude some. So right now, if you're, if you're running a large nonprofit, there is the investment side of the nonprofit, and then there is the operations or the program side of the nonprofit. Um, and, they're, uh, and they're very separate. I get, what, what I was talking about is that uh, there's so much money that is locked up, not so much in the nonprofits, but in endowments and foundations that are supporting the nonprofits, that that money sh uh, should be unleashed and should be directed to large-scale problems or solutions, investments, that are consistent with the programmatic activities that that nonprofit is doing. I'll, I'll give you an example that has nothing to do with energy, but um, the Nature Conservancy is a good example. It's a, you know, a great organization. Um, there is, uh, you know, they're in the business of buying large tracts of land from a biodiversity <laughs> standpoint and holding on to that. Uh, people who support the Nature Conservancy, uh, for the most part, are supporting the Nature Conservancy by uh, writing a check um, so that you can support their operations. What if there was an opportunity that you could invest so investors could support the Nature Conservancy in a different way? They can support them by owning a piece of the land or having an investment vehicle 
and so that that money from an investor's perspective was not going out in the form of a donation but was being recycled in the form of an investment. Um, and that may not have actually clarified your answer to <laughs> your question. So. We'll stand here until he but, answers your yeah, question. But I do want to make one thing clear. The, the work that, that I'm doing is not nonprofit. You know, we support nonprofits through our philanthropic efforts and other activities. Where I spend my life is very much for profit, it's very much commercial, and I'm a firm believer that the solutions need to come from the commercial side and the investment side that can then support the hard work and great work that nonprofits uh, are doing. Question in the middle. It seems that the initial clean tech investors um, invested on a belief that there would develop a need for um, the, the clean tech technology or what have you. Um, are we getting to the point where it's becoming attractive to anyone, no matter whether they're skeptic about the environment or they believe in global warming or not, that there's just the one bottom line and not a triple or a double that they can feel confident investing in? Right. So, so the question was, um, boy, I'm not, so is, help, help me again. No, the, the, the question is early investors in, uh, in this sector may not have been as return focused as they were trying to move things along from a, uh, a, a mission perspective, per se. And, and, you're, and has that changed? And you're absolutely right. If you look at just the volume of capital that's going into the market, and you look at the companies that were funded 15 years ago, 10 years ago, and their investors, there, it, it was not mainstream investors. What's happened is that people have recognized that these are great investments. And it doesn't matter if you believe in climate change, if you believe in a low carbon economy, you could sit there and pencil it out and say, you know what, this is a great investment, this is a great company, and I'm going to get a return. And I think that's the best thing that can happen because it then opens up a whole set of investors that don't have to feel uh, a certain need or conviction. They're doing it from a return perspective. That's important because that's just getting more and more capital in the markets. As more capital comes in the market, then more entrepreneurs, like you say, look, you know what, I sh if I'm going to go invent something and I'm going to go create, I'm going to go start a company, why not start it in this sector? You know, it's as attractive and could be as financial rewarding as uh, the next web uh, product. But you know what, there's something else that's going on here too. So I think it's, a, it's an exciting time uh, for, for that to happen. I also think that what's changed uh, recently is the recognition that we can fuel the economy. Um, you, could just, you could hear it with the different politicians in the last week talking about the green economy and five million green jobs. And so instead of feeling like there's this trade-off in, in uh, clean energy that you're going to have to give up something, I think there's a real sense of optimism now that it is the next uh, new economy, that there's a lot of jobs that can be created, there's a lot of careers that can happen, there's a lot of wealth that can be created for the entrepreneurs and for the investors. And, and I think for the first time, um, there's a lot of people that believe that the jobs that are created um, are going to be created right in the community. Uh, there's a gentleman, uh, Van Jones, who's out of Oakland, that uh, is talking a lot about green jobs, green job core, and you should check them out. But what's neat about what's happening now is if you're going to put solar panels up 
you can't outsource the installation. Uh, and so it's a, <laughs> right? I mean, you're gonna, and so there's a huge opportunity right now for jobs to be happening in the community, for jobs to be in Oakland, in areas where you know, there really aren't many other opportunities. So, uh, and you could see it. You can see what's happened in the energy bill. There was a fair amount of money that was put in to create jobs. It really, it's the fueling of a, a new economy. And I think that the fact that there's a new service community that needs to be built out for the installation of clean energy, for the servicing of clean energy, you know, I, I, I hope that it's an opportunity to kind of kickstart um, the economy. We, you know, large-scale automobile manufacturing, you know, I, I can't tell you whether it's coming back or not, but I will tell you that uh, putting solar panels on, it's happening. You, you know, the amount of people who are getting uh, new jobs that are created from the green economy is, is large and it's, and it's growing. So it's a real optimism that's happening out there. And let me throw my two cents in on that one just quickly is uh, any time a Web 2.0 VC uh, feels a need to have a clean energy investment portfolio, you realize that this has become mainstream in Silicon Valley and Sand Hill Road. It's, you're embarrassed nowadays if you're a venture capitalist, uh, at least a full service VC, and you don't have a couple of portfolio companies in this space. And that's uh, either you know, uh, the continuation, the lemming effect, or, or wisdom, uh, depending on the returns in a couple of years. Well, can I, let me just add on to that too. Which I think uh, what's so exciting is that each of the asset classes are being mobilized to solve these problems. It's the, it starts with the venture capital community, and it's it's very exciting what's happening right here. And then you start looking at Wall Street, and you see you know Citicorp saying fifty billion dollars they're going to be putting towards. Uh, clean energy. Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs, you know, who's, who's been an, an incredible uh, investor in this sector. So all of the large investment banks are, uh, are investing, they're talking about it. Um, and you know what, I, I, and I'm surprised I haven't mentioned this before, but energy efficiency uh, is a huge, huge opportunity. And that's an area that has been underserved, underinvested, it's not quite as sexy as uh, the next fuel cell or solar, but it is right here. Right now, uh, green buildings can be retrofitted, and uh, there needs to be uh, so much more emphasis put on energy efficiency because it's right here, and it's not a trade-off of dollars. Those are, you know, those are dollars that will be returned immediately given the savings on the energy side. Question. Um, so cap and trade, from what I understand, it mostly applies to industrial settings. Has there been any talk or is anything in place of like a residential cap and trade where like, you know, a person can build a clean building or install solar panels um, and other than just getting a lower electric bill by less usage, but they maybe and that's an additional financial incentive. Maybe the people are using exceptional amounts of energy. They can, they're forced to sort of kick something back to those guys who are using very little. So the question is, is there, is there uh, ever been a notion or proposal for residential cap-and-trade in addition to the industrial cap-and-trade that's proposed? Yeah, there's, I mean, a lot of people talk about that. I, I think that um, the low-hanging fruit is industrial uh, emissions, and, um, and so that's where the focus has been. But there are other incentives, Steve can talk about it too, to, uh, give, to encourage you to make that... Uh, investment in solar and in renewable energies and I mean you have had personal experience with that. So. I just literally yesterday signed a contract for a solar installation in our house and I have to tell you the payback now is about seven years and if you're thinking about being a long-term homeowner 
That is, instead of just flipping houses, which nowadays probably isn't a good idea, that's pretty good payback. And it's pretty good payback even if you were just doing it on dollars and cents, let alone um, um, just trying to figure out what's good for the environment. So, yeah, I, I don't think there'll be a cap and trade, in my opinion. You, you, it'll be a long time before we see that. But there'll be enough economic incentives for both consumers who, with already installed and builders. Um, I think what we've done in California um, with PG&E and also AB32 in California, that's going to drive some of these things on a statewide level to, to much lower levels of carbon emission. We have time for about one more question. Uh, yes? Oh, I just want to know, what's the relationship like between the big like, utilities who control the power grid and smaller companies who you might fund who want to implement projects instead of the wind farm? So the question is, what's the relationship to the big utilities and the small companies that Mission Point Capital might want to fund? Well, the utilities now need to buy, uh, need to create um, renewable power. So uh, there has been a real awakening. It's happening on a state-by-state -state basis, uh, California in the lead, but it's, in, uh, you know, it's probably in 20 states at this point in time, and there's a push on the national level. So utilities need to work with independent operators to find sources of renewable power. Um, so there is a, uh, an, a, a, a an acceptance in a very positive way because it, it's going to solve their demand needs for power. Um, but I mean, that's a good question. I think one of the things that is changing right now too is that there's um, people are starting to recognize decentralized power, um, and so uh, industrial companies are recognizing that get, that they can create. I mean, some have been doing this for a long time, but even smaller companies that they can create their own power at different times of the day be less reliant on, uh, on the grid. So Jesse, I really appreciate you coming out from uh, Connecticut and uh, coming here to talk to us. We also won't mention the fact that your son is here at Stanford as well um, <laughs> and sitting in the audience, but we, we, we won't bring that up. Uh, and so thank you very much and it was great talking right. to you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.